Hey, business and biotechers, this is Matt Piller. And before we jump in today's episode, I have a big special announcement. On Monday, November 13th at 11 a.m. Eastern, we're taking the business of biotech live for a one-hour, highly interactive web conversation with a special guest you won't want to miss. I'm planning a good 30-minute grilling of Blue Sphere Bio CEO and biotech legal expert, Kier Loyakano on legal and IP protection considerations for new and emerging biotechs. Kier is an Esquire and a veteran biotech attorney turned CEO with a ton of experience. And when I'm done with him, I'll turn him over to a select group of viewers, you business of biotechers, who will have the benefit of 30 minutes of face-to-face Q&A and interaction with Kier and other members of the call. This hour will be incredibly consultative and offer great value at no cost but your time. And it's an opportunity for some face-to-face virtual networking with fellow Business of Biotech listeners who just so happen to be the coolest cats in the business. Go to the link in the show notes of today's episode to register, and I'll see you there. So welcome back to the Business of Biotech. I'm Matt Piller, and today finds me in Cambridge, Massachusetts at Lab Central, uh, visiting Joe Kaufman, Dr. Joe Kaufman at Codagenics, uh, SVP of Oncology. EVP of Oncology. All right, perfect. Uh, And Joe, I've wanted to have you on the show since you joined me on a panel discussion on vaccine, uh, therapeutic vaccines a few few months ago, because you did a fantastic job. Yeah. on that panel. So uh, ever since then, I've been like, I, I got to get down there and uh, get some time w- with Joe. So I appreciate you for having me here at the facility. It's gorgeous. It's a great, great spot. Thank, Thank you for being here. I look forward to the conversation. Yeah, me too. Um, so I want to I want to start by getting to know you a little bit better. Uh, you earned your PhD in Germany. What, what, where'd, you, where'd you get your PhD? Um, at German Cancer Research Center, which is essentially the German version of the NCI, if you want to think about it like that. It's associated with University of Heidelberg in southwest of Germany. Perfect. So you, you earned your PhD there, and then you came to the U.S. and did your post-doc, uh, post-doc at Mayo? At Brigham and Women's Hospital. Mayo would be the other option uh, if you wanted to continue to work on oncolytic viruses. That would have been natural. Yeah. Um, but I ended up working um, with Nino Kyoka in the neurosurgery department um, at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Very cool. And that's here in Boston. That's here in Boston, correct. So, so what was, uh, take us take us back to that day, like the, those days. What, what was in your, what was your mindset? Like, why did you want to come to the U.S.? How did you end up here? Yeah, um, I guess I have to disappoint you to say that that was a scientific decision. Um, I think it was primarily driven by the fact that during my PhD, I had met an American citizen um, and who ended up being my husband. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, that's not scientific, that's love. <laughs> Exactly. Um, And about two years into that relationship, after he had been in Germany for about 11 years, um, he decided that it was time for him to move back to the States and asked me if I would want to join him. And when I realized, of course, he's from the Boston area and that is is the location where we would consider moving to, um, where else to go as a scientist or as an aspiring scientist in this area. And so um, my condition was I have to graduate and finish my PhD. But ultimately, I think I interviewed at Brigham and Women's during Blizzard Nemo in 2013 Mm -hmm. um, a week before my PhD defense and 
um, the rest is history with my postdoc, and we have been here ever since. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a great story. Uh, your husband is from Boston to be Yeah, from the area. Yeah, yeah. yeah. very yeah. cool. Very cool. What took him to Germany? So like the opposite question. I know what brought you here. What took him there? Um, he will move for work as well. Um, he is an IT store, data storage solutions consultant. Mm-hmm. Um, initially had a gig um, one week here, one week there, and decided that that is not sustainable after a while, even as a 25-year-old. And that's how he permanently moved to Germany. Yeah. Very good. Okay, so why immuno-oncology? <laughs> what's, what's your, what, what, where is your interest there rooted? Yeah, I think it's more about the oncology part of this that really drove me there. Um, I think I inherited my dad's interest in biology and science in general. He's a biology chemistry teacher. And while the majority of my upbringing was influenced by sort of my mom's artsy side of things, I really also always enjoyed watching nature shows and things like that. I actually do that to this day. Just last week, I learned something wild about some frogs in Patagonia. Wow. Uh, but that's beside the point. Um, but um, as, as I'm fascinated by all of that, it always felt like, okay, that's great that we understand how animals interact with each other or symbiosis between different things, but somehow that isn't applied enough for me. And so that's where I think the desire to do something sort of biomedical arose. Um, I then had the opportunity as a teenager to live in New Zealand for a year for a student exchange. Um, I was able to do that through Rotary International and met some fantastic host parents and others who allowed me to have a very influential time, I would say. One of those host families there, um, my host dad um, had gone through several rounds of melanoma at the time and there was always this underlying concern about when would it recur and if it does what what would be the repercussions of that and that somehow got me into thinking about oncology um, I ran a half marathon for New Zealand Cancer Society as a fundraiser supported by Rotary International and if, well I should say I ran half of that and walked the rest but <laughs> um, but some Somehow that got me into into things, and it was really that passion to do something for cancer patients Mm -hmm. um, that drove me into that direction. I think immuno-oncology as a field was still sort of budding and emerging, um, and there were multiple twists and turns that ultimately got me into immuno-oncology specifically, but... Um, oncology is what I'm passionate about to this day. And if anything, as you grow older, it gets closer and closer to you um, as you realize that it affects your own life and that of your friends and family. Right. Yeah. Um, so spent time in New Zealand. I, I wanted to ask you total aside, just a total aside, but your English is like it's impeccable. Oh, thank you. How, how did you get so good uh, at English? I guess New Zealand was part of part of that. Uh, listening to the accent when I came back and talked Kiwi accent, <laughs> I, I went beard. Um, I think I had actually trouble with the German English teachers who couldn't understand me. But um, yeah, then I mean, all of my work is in English. Every paper and publication is in English. Um, yeah. I speak English at home with my husband, and did ever since we met. So it's just yeah, well, it's, it's fantastic, immersive, and part of it is also my approach to 
assimilation, I guess. If you go to a different country, you live like they do there um, to the degree that it aligns with your values. But, you know, it, it doesn't help me to find, you know, a German enclave here and pretend that I live in Germany. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, so when you were making decisions about how you wanted to apply your, your passion mm -hmm. for, uh, in, in oncology, what led you down the path of biopharma, the biopharma industry, developing biopharmaceuticals. Why not academia? Why not practicing medicine? Yeah. What was... I mean, on the academic side, I could give you the usual story about academic funding cycles and the politics behind that. Um, I don't think I was close enough to really having to get funding myself so that I make this the main reason. For me, it was really how to apply the science and make an impact for patients. Um, while both my PhD and my postdoc institutions were hospitals or very closely affiliated with hospitals, so you would think that there was translational science going on, the work I did personally and the visibility I had there wasn't close enough to translation and patient impact as I wanted it. So I felt like I needed a different um, approach to that. And that's how I ended up in, in biopharma. Now, the question, why wouldn't you do that as a medical doctor? That seems even more intuitive, um, again, is, I guess, the more humbling version of that story. <laughs> um, after returning from New Zealand, I did another student exchange, this time shorter, and to Argentina, where I had mentioned my ideas about potential pursuing a career in, in medical science in some shape or form for oncology. And my host father in Argentina had a friend who was an oncologist, and I was able to shadow this individual for a day to see what it would be like to practice as an oncology mm. oncologist. And let's just say the pediatric cancer patient who got a bedside procedure that I observed did better with that procedure than I did. Mm. And I left that day a giant bruise on my head because I passed out and had to wow. realize that probably practicing medicine, at least at that time in my career wasn't an option for me and I wasn't made for it honestly yeah. and so um, I'm lucky that I was able to pursue a biomedical career and still try and work towards the same objectives just in a different way yeah 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 I mean I've had plenty of conversations with uh, yeah, asked the same question of many execs in the biopharma space and they've told me a few similar stories, you know, the, the, the actual uh, clinical work was just not, not going to work out for them, but also that they were inspired to uh, be able to have a one-to-many impact as opposed to a one-to-one a one impact. So, I mean, there, there's there's that right side, right? That, that's fair. Um, I would say that there is still obviously immense value to one-on-one -on -one sure. care and relationships. Um, I will say also probably at the time I wouldn't have had the interpersonal skills to actually practice, especially in a difficult area like oncology, where it's not only scientifically or medically difficult, but also obviously on a very personal level, very difficult for the patients, their families, and yeah. you know, those around them. Yeah. So what were your uh, what were your early research uh, days like? Like what, what were you researching early on? In your yeah, I think during my PhD and postdoc, um, I worked on um, these um, this this modality that I think 
today, we generally call oncolytic viruses. They do a lot more than that. They're actually immunotherapy drugs, which is why I don't necessarily like the term, but that's how most people know about them. Essentially, they are viruses that are repurposed um, in a way that they can destroy cancer cells and re-alert the immune system to attack a person's cancer. And it is, for me, a sort of was a perfect marriage between this fascination for these tiny little viruses that actually are not even alive, um, but can wreak so much havoc if you use them or if, if you think about them in a natural way of causing disease, but could also be repurposed and engineered in so many fascinating ways, and then apply that to the oncology disease area that was passionate for me. So um, that was, that was uh, where it originally came from um, because of the virus experience that I had gained I was actually recruited into biotech um, for vaccine development based on the knowledge about viral engineering, viral life cycles, assays, how to assess where a virus goes or the immune response to a virus, um, and have been always sort of at that intersect between infectious disease and immuno-oncology, um, where actually a lot of what we know about the immunology of cancer originates from our knowledge about the immunology to pathogens, viruses specifically. Yeah. You said you were recruited to biotech. Tell, mm-hmm. me, tell me about that. Um, yeah, that was actually really strange. So I had, I, my postdoc was only about uh, 15 months, I would say. And at the time, I started sort of getting itchy to get out and, and actually try and make the transition into biotech. Although I wasn't at the point yet where I was actively you know, looking for a job in that sense. And usually I don't respond to phone calls from numbers I don't know. But mm. for whatever reason that day I did, and it was a headhunter that was trying to sell me this job about herpes viruses and that that I would be perfect for that for to do vaccine development. And I disagreed because I thought of myself as an oncology researcher, mm-hmm. um, but decided, hey, let's take this as an opportunity to, you know, see what interviewing is even like in industry, because I had no idea, yeah. and sort of approached it from a learning side of things and ended up with that company um, doing herpes virus vaccine development originally from an infectious disease perspective, although we did expand that herpes virus program also. Um, into oncology with a new um, Epstein-Barr virus program that we started to develop um, at Genosha Biosciences, which obviously has dual disease area applications. Yeah, very interesting. We're going to take a quick timeout. I want to make sure yeah. that my camera's still working. Quick timeout. Yes. And our sound is still working good. Good, good. All right, it makes me nervous, you know. That's all right. I, 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 would, I would be very disappointed if we did all this and didn't catch it. I have to that. do it again. Um, <laughs> come come on, on, same way. Come back and visit at any time, but. <laughs> um, so, you, so your career uh, from there, work, working uh, with this company that was doing mm-hmm. uh, herpes virus research. Um, what did you did you go from there to uh, to, to sorrow? Yes, or, I did. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I was with Genosha Biosciences for about three and a half years, um, working my way up from scientist one to scientist two, and just the the 
regular trajectory, I guess, that you um, that that you have or can have early on in a in a career. Um, admittedly, I was supported by a lot of people who believed in me and allowed me to, you know, expand my my reach from doing bench science to also having research associates report to me and mm-hmm. sort of start project leadership kind of. Um, kind of responsibilities yeah but then um, after about three and a half years I decided that it was time for a change and I joined Tesoro um, which was a virtual company not virtual in the sense of that we think of now after COVID (laughs) Um, but virtual in the sense that they do not have their own labs and science was operationalized uh, entirely through um, CROs and academic collaborators um, and so it felt like a natural sort of progression also maybe to try and get outside of the day-to-day hands-on lab work. Yeah. And it was a natural transition to oversee science that is conducted by others. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to, I've got, I've got some questions for you about sort of that transition into more of a senior yeah. leadership role mm-hmm. that I'm going to get to later on. But mm-hmm. um since since you brought it up, at what point in your in your career in those research days, scientist one, scientist two, at what point did you start thinking about um, you know potentially down the road moving into more uh, more of an executive position? Was it sort of always in the back of your head, like just the natural progression of things? Or I guess I guess so. It was that I can't say that there was a trigger event that made me rethink that I don't want to be in lab. It wasn't a broken fly, flow cytometer on a Saturday that made me suddenly <laughs> decide I need to do something different. Yeah. Um, but it was just, um, I think, a natural expansion of understanding more and more what it takes to develop a drug, right? You come from scientific training where people teach you how to run an assay properly and you build from there and you go to scientific questions and larger and larger question horizons and planning horizons. Mm -hmm. So it's actually natural to then think about, okay, what does it take in a company to develop a drug? And there is more than the science itself. There is how do you make that drug? How do you actually prove that it is okay to put in patients? What does it then take to develop that in patients? until hopefully, finally, at the end, some of these are then becoming drugs available on the market. And so I think it was a curiosity about that process that made me then think further and further outside of the scientific experiment that then I think naturally at some point you realize you can't do it all um, and you have to sort of think about what am I good at and what am I interested in and where can I pursue my passion of developing drugs, not just discovering them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then you got uh, quite a, uh, I, I guess, a baptism by fire for the flavor of, uh, of, of biopharma when mm-hmm. Tesoro was acquired by GSK. It was sort of a exposure to the business of biotech, right? Mergers, yeah. acquisitions, I guess change. it was the second round of a baptism. Um, when I was at Genosha Biosciences, we unfortunately had to go through some restructuring, so I had been on the surviving end of layoffs, but we can discuss how both the survivors and those who need to exit a company are affected by by an event like this. Yeah. Um, then the merger acquisition was sort of the, the other side of it, maybe the happier 
career side of of, um, of things, but um, people say if you haven't gotten laid off or got acquired, you haven't been in biotech, so just wait for it. Right. Um, and yeah, I, I guess I'm fortunate enough to have been able to learn from both sides. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that. Like the, the first, so at Genosha, um, yeah. how, did, how did sort of that tumultuous time affect you, affect your work? Uh, you know, even even personal. Yeah, I would say at Genosha, the writing was on the wall a little bit, um, in the sense that we 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 were all convinced that our phase three ready sort of asset was actually something that that really should get um, patient access and should be developed further, mm-hmm. and it was um, thanks to. I'm going to say open leadership by the CEO, Chip Clark, at the time that um, everyone within the company had some visibility to the difficulties we had at the time to find partners that allowed us to finance that phase three program, which in the vaccine space is a very big program with safety database requirements that are enormous. So as a small biotech, we just wouldn't have been able to do it on our own. Um, Obviously, not everyone was privy to the details of negotiations that were had or weren't had. But in general, we knew, you know, if some event doesn't occur until a certain time, it will be tough for us to stay fiscally responsible for the rest of the company. So... Yes, that moment was hard. It was hard to be a manager at the time, getting dragged out of a team meeting to say, hey, there will be invites. Make sure your team doesn't go directly to lab, but goes to their laptops to see which invite they're in. Um, So, I mean, those things, when you go through them for the first time, is half deer in headlights and half what am I do as a human being, right. you know, and some of your team stays and some of your team has to go. Um, and, you know, that's hard to explain when you actually had no influence over decisions like that. But um, you go along and you try and be a good human and manager and go I've, through that, I guess. Yeah, I've had conversations um, <laughs> on this topic yeah. here in Cambridge and yeah. Boston with, with other biotech execs who have said much the same it's too small a town to uh, you know go through yeah. it with a chip on your shoulder i mean it's and it seems like there's a lot of transparency like it seems like it's you know it's a, it's pr- it's pretty open in terms of i feel like that that's part of how you can do this well uh transparency to the appropriate levels of course mm-hmm. because it will help people understand that it's not about them as a person which is why they were on the restructured end of things it wasn't that they are the worst and therefore let go but here is what we're trying to preserve here is what we had to give up and yes it was hard for us but we had to do this mm-hmm. and i feel like if you explain it to people that doesn't take the emotion on the day away, but in hindsight, I think it helps them understand and not take it too personally and too seriously. And I was very pleased to see that within a few months, pretty much everyone at Genosha had a new role. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a great place to be able to walk yes. down the hall or down the street, right? Yeah, and, exactly. And market yourself. Exactly. So then emerging and acquisition is obviously a very different thing. I would say on that front... 
I did not see that coming <laughs> personally. Yeah. The role that I had at what the time. What role were you in when that? Um, I think I was somewhere between principal scientist, associate director, which was is a lateral part depending on which which sort of track you're in. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not have the visibility that this would be coming at the time, um, but I will also say that we had quite some time to process this in the way from the original announcement to closure of that and then officially becoming GSK employee for me it was about a year um, so with, with a lot of influential conversations um, that made that happen but again I think it's about how do you message the reasoning um, the fact that someone like the CEO of GSK was there on that day not in her usual orange outfit, but in her Tesaru blue outfit, to be vulnerable and say how nervous she is about making this work and how important we are to make this work and work together um, made it human again. Um, And I will say that um, I don't think Tesaru would have been able to develop the drugs in the way that we were then able to um, with the support of the GSK team. Yeah, what kind of what kind of change uh, to your like day to day did that bring? That acquisition yeah. bring? For me, it was. I mean, let's be real, a massive career accelerator um, because my day-to-day changed from I'm one of the scientists overseeing some studies and reporting them through a sub-team to a project team who then goes through the layers of decision-making to essentially building out an immune biology group in the Boston area, um, obviously pharma operationalized their science internally um, to a large extent. So part of this was creating an immuno-oncology footprint in Boston. Um, I was able to join the senior leadership team um, of the immuno-oncology and combinations research unit at GSK with the most incredible human beings I've ever met on a scientific level and as friends and mentors. Um, I learned so much from them scientifically and otherwise leadership wise um, that I could not have ever imagined. Um, I will also say at Tassaro, immuno-oncology research was actually fairly small, while the company was about 700 uh, employees total at the time. Mm -hmm. Immuno-oncology R&D was very small. So for me, I finally had people who knew what I was talking about and who understood my struggles with an asset or an assay or a certain set of biology or um, or or the sort of bigger issue around immunology where if you tweak in one place you're actually getting a lot of other reactions that come downstream of that that may or may not negate what you're actually trying to do and those complexities i think i finally have people to talk to and to learn from and to solve problems with when you're when you're part of a small group and you're being acquired by a, a larger company um you know Common wisdom might, might you know, you, you might look at that and you might say, eh, that's sort of a risky place to be. But clearly you did some, we're doing something right. You did something right. Uh, if you had to give some advice to folks who find themselves in a similar situation, um, you know, what did, set your humility on a shelf and tell me what, what Joe Kaufman did right. 
to set yourself up for that, as you said, a career acceleration? Yeah. Um, I would say the main contributor to leveraging the opportunity of the acquisition was to put aside preconceived notions of what pharma would be like. I mean, I had been in biotech before and through friends and otherwise you hear all these things about politics and layers of processes and, and just being very corporate. Um, and I, I allowed myself to just step away from that and just walk the experience and learn from the people who I meet, whether this is a group that I would be willing to work with. Um, I had the chance to very early on meet um, very influential immuno-oncology um, uh, peers and, and colleagues at the end. It was um, people like, like Ken Hans, who ended up being um, one of the other members of the senior leadership team at, at immuno-oncology. My future manager, Jim Smothers, the head of immuno-oncology, who uh, made an effort to get to know me on the one hand, but on the other hand, I was immediately struck that I would be able to see myself working with them um, and that they weren't that that picture that I had of what pharma or corporate people would be like. And I allowed myself to, to experience that. Um, I would also say on the flip side of that, that I did put um, conscious effort into the idea of building these relationships. And when I would have been at a conference in New York, I decided that Pennsylvania isn't far away and let me go to Collegeville and meet these people. Mm-hmm. Um, it was actually a unique opportunity to even meet some of the UK uh, colleagues, Sue Griffin, that that I ended up working very closely with um, because she was there at the same time. And it was just a fantastic opportunity to build the relationships and make it more about a personal work environment and not so much about pharma versus biotech and David versus Goliath. Yeah, yeah. Um, what, what position were you in at GSK when you left? Um, I was a scientific director at the time, and I was um, a member of this this um, sort of core leadership team at the research unit. Um, at that time, I had built uh, the immune biology team, at least to some degree, um, in the Boston area. Um, had set up a successor to to replace me in some shape or form, um, who's doing a fantastic job from what I hear. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, I think that's that's where my position was. I, I have to say I've, the acquisition itself and the transition and merging portfolio data systems, all that stuff um, took quite some time. So I think um, I left relatively shortly after we achieved some sort of steady state, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Was, was that system, so, I mean, the, the discipline, it, it's, it seems like the discipline that you were working in with the GSK acquisition, that, that was sort of supercharged. Yeah. Um, what was what was challenging for you about it? What, was it sort of the back-end systems integration, some of that kind of day-to-day, like, merger of of systems and operations or yeah i mean as you can imagine if you go through the last 10 years of your email inbox and you try and tell me how i should navigate that inbox that's probably hard (laughs) and it requires a lot of historical knowledge that 
honestly, I didn't necessarily have. So some of it was me figuring out who five years before me, some someone thought yeah. about how to structure files and things like that. But honestly, that's just one of the technical things that are necessary and very important to ultimately creating a properly integrated team and company. Um, I will say it was not just data integration. It's just, um, I think, a lot of lessons about scientific rigor, about data robustness, about reporting that are very important and really well intended can also become a burden if your mindset is that you have to ensure that 100,000 people go in the same direction, at least hopefully the same direction, right? So I understand why a lot of these processes and policies are in place. Um, I will say that I I had the, the benefit, I would say, from getting a lot of career support and development support from my manager and others in the organization, in particular as a female leader, there was a lot of emphasis on, on um, you know, inclusion and, and supporting female leaders. I was admitted to a program called Accelerating Differences that got me access to personal coaching, group coaching, um, learning about yourself and who you are as a person and as a leader. Um, it was opportunities like this that were the good end of all these um, offerings and, and, and things. On the other side, um, to create visibility, I was brought into a GSK-wide initiative, how we should all be writing, you know, our electronic notebooks the identical way. Um, And it was, at some point, taking me a little bit too far away from the science and the patient-applied translational work that I was passionate about, Mm. um, that ultimately, despite the most amazing team I could have thought of, um, made me uh, consider other options. For emerging biotechs, scaling the process development and manufacturing of biologic molecules to clinical standards can be a challenging. However, you don't need to go it alone. Don't miss an episode of the Business of Biotech podcast, where we offer insights on regulatory, funding, and other essential topics. The pod is brought to you in collaboration with Cytiva, a global provider of technologies and services that advance and accelerate the development, manufacture, and delivery of therapeutics. Check out their resources at Cytiva.com backslash Emerging Biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A.com backslash Emerging Biotech. All right, so one, one more question about that before we transition to yeah. the other options that you considered. Uh, you, you mentioned the, the programs that you were exposed to that helped you uh, develop uh, your career and your, mm-hmm. and your leadership skills. And that, that's, that's fantastic because I think a lot of, you know, you, you hate to stereotype, but I think a lot of folks who uh, start out in, in research as research scientists um, maybe have a bit of a, tra- a, a difficult time, a challenge transitioning from, you know, lab work and sort of being in your own head and doing your work to opportunities beyond uh, that, that uh, you know, encourage leadership. So um, what advice would you have for, for folks who, you know, maybe don't have inherently, I mean, you're, you're a super personable person. I imagine you were that way before you <laughs> took all these, all these classes, but 
you know, if it doesn't come naturally to you, what advice would you have for research scientists who are interested in sort of, you know, climbing out of their shell and, and, yeah. and pursuing other options? Uh, thanks for the kind words. Mm. The reality is it does not come natural. <laughs> you, fooled, you fooled me. Um, and it is a lot of work, uh, I think, to first of all learn who you are and what you're about. Because you cannot go out and stand up for your values or your ideas or claim that you can represent a team in, in an external representation way uh, just as much as in a day-to-day -day situation if you don't know what you're actually trying to do. So in a way, these courses allowed me to take time to reflect on why am I the way I am? <laughs> why do I have reactions to certain things the way I do, the good, the bad, the ugly, and you have to put in the self-work to realize, okay, um, I'm getting angry with this person in a meeting because now for the third time they were late, Part of that is because I'm German and I was trained to be on time all the time. But what it's really about is respect and I want to be respected. I try and respect others and that's why I get annoyed. Mm -hmm. So either I have to explain to people, please be on time or, you know, you, you find your own way of then how to handle these kinds of situations to say, okay, they are showing respect in a different way. That's also fine as long as otherwise I feel respected. Yeah. I mean, this is a tiny example, but I think you have to put in self-work. Um, if someone wants advice on what books to read, <laughs> just go to BreneBrown.com and you will find all my secret sauces. <laughs> um, but um, that's where I learned to, to use her words, dare to lead, I guess, and to also brave the wilderness. Mm -hmm. um, I'm using these stereotypical book titles of hers, but uh, it encompasses in a way what, what you have to go through. And for me, it started very self-reflective. Mm -hmm. And only because of that, I then found my way to show up in a certain way. That doesn't mean when we leave the room, I need five minutes for myself to you know, you sure. stress. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah. maybe that's part of the skill as well, to yeah. show up in a certain way in the right moment, in the right way. I, I appreciate that, uh, the, the transparency in that response. And at, at risk of creating another stereotype, I, my wife is 100% German, so I, I know well the expectations, <laughs> right? Well, at, at risk you were 20 minutes early here, so I appreciate uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I've been married for 20 years to a German woman. I, I know you. Um, okay, so that transition to codegenics. Yeah. You uh, you hinted to the why uh, a few minutes ago. You talked about um, you know the the maybe desire to get closer to. Uh, I think it was the. Uh, on the one hand, the growing desire to get um, back to a more innovative, faster, nimble way of operationalizing science. Um, it was also, I think, the natural transition because of all that leadership support that I had gotten, um, that when I was approached about an opportunity to build a disease area from scratch, to take a platform technology and, and apply it in a different way than what Codogenics had been done previously, Going back to science I was very familiar with, with these oncolytic viruses, in a way it's a full circle kind of <laughs> situation here, mm -hmm. um, that was 
sounded very attractive to me at the time and allowed me to put to the test whether I was made up for this and figure out what it would be like to apply everything that I had learned in part theoretically, but in part maybe um, also practically and, and see where this would where this would go. Yeah. Was there uh, was there any reservation or concern about, you know, you would obviously sort of rode that acquisition train to big bio, uh, and now you're coming back down to a, a small political stage, you know, or early, early stage bio. Was there any reservation about working for a new and emerging company? Um, no, I think uh, I understand by now enough the cycles that things go through. I mean, obviously, what we have experienced in a macro climate in the last couple of years or so is is unique, but mm-hmm. cycles like similar to this, I would say, have existed before. And in a way, Cambridge or the Boston area allows you to be free in a way because there are so many other local opportunities that you could pursue in the event that, you know, end up on the restructured end of of difficult decisions that leaders would have to make. So in a way, um, this is part of the course. And um, if anything, my reservations about this transition was is it really worth leaving such an amazing leadership team and peer team behind? Yeah. Um, is it worth giving that up for the format of how a company operates? Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of the format of how a company operates, what, what adjustments did you find yourself having to make it? And again, I fully recognize that you would, before the GSK Tesaro experience, you know, you had seen it before, but it had been a little while. So like, what adjustments did you have to make professionally or accept, you know, in terms of resources that are available to you? Or, I mean, it's yeah. obviously a pretty big transition. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's be real. Just because a company like GSK has a big purse in its entirety, that doesn't mean that within your research unit or work business unit, you don't have to fight for resources and explain mm. why it's worth investing them here and not somewhere else. So yeah. I I don't nece- I did not experience, oh at pharma you just, you know, throw the money out blank there check. and just blank check, do whatever you want. Yeah. And then suddenly you find yourself in biotech where you, you know, count your pennies. I don't think that that is a fair representation. Um how thoughtfully, at least GSK, in my experience, tried to spend their money. Um, it's more about, you know, you go from very well-organized systems, I always said that I had a tracker to make sure I don't forget about all the other trackers I need to fill out. <laughs> um, you go from that to more or less build the plane as you go along, as you're maturing as a biotech company. That gives a lot of opportunity for influencing what this company should look like. But at the same time, you know, you 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 sometimes just have to find a way and troubleshoot, I guess, your day-to-day work as much as you troubleshoot your science. Do you like that? Do you find that like exciting? Yeah, I think if I am in, in both extremes, it's no good. I think my sweet slot would be somewhere in the middle. <laughs> but um, um, but if I had to make the choice, I would rather have a little bit more freedom and and allow to make decisions faster um, and quicker and then act on them 
um, rather than going through several layers of approval where. Yeah. 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 All right. Better check that. I'm sorry. I have to keep it's stopping. Okay. Still good. I think it's stopping at the 30 minute mark, so right. I'm going to check it again at about 10. Okay. <clears throat> so when you joined Codagenics, what, what position did you take there? Uh, I was hired as EVP of Oncology oh, you're okay. at, yeah, at Codagenics. Yep. Mm -hmm. And was that, uh, so you mentioned obviously getting closer to development and, and, uh, and, you know, pay, patient benefit um, as being a motivator, but was the EVP opportunity enticing to you as well? I mean, was that? <laughs> well, uh, I think it was pretty scary. And when I was first approached about a position with that title, I said, I have no business applying for this or ever being considered for this. I didn't see myself being ready for that. Um, I, again, at, at the height of biotech, let's just put that out there, you know, titles is letters on a piece of paper and it's about what you contribute and not what your title is. Yeah. Um, so for me, the job description of um, the, the idea, first of all, to build a lab, find lab in a new location. Um, so we are here in Cambridge, as you mentioned in the very beginning, um, Codagenics is headquartered in Farmingdale, New York on Long Island, and that's where our vaccine R&D um, is located. Uh, but we had the intention to build uh, the oncology research and development team um, in the Boston area, but we had no place. So part of it was find a location, build up a, a operating lab and also a team. Therefore, so this, this fell under, this was your responsibility? Yeah, yeah that okay. was part of the, the gig. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, um, obviously, we had proof of concept data with a promising asset that um, was studied to the degree that made people confident enough that we should be building this disease area, which was new for, for Codagenics, but basically take that towards an IND or clinical development and think about how do we fill a portfolio behind that. So I think it was the broad scope to think about discovery to translational early stage clinical um, and build it in a new location from the ground up with an ability to therefore also influence team culture and mm -hmm. hopefully therefore company culture um, was was very exciting for me as an opportunity, um, letters aside. I mean, letters aside, you just rattled <laughs> off a whole lot of responsibility, Joe. I mean, you you know, find a location, build a team, you know, ha handle that dis discovery through translational, prepare for IND. Like, that, this is a, a lot. Is that why your initial, you know, initially you're kind of like, I don't know if I have any, like, what, what was your reservation? My reservation was, uh, honestly, and I shouldn't be saying this as a trained female leader, <laughs> that it was the um, gut reaction to those letters or the, that title. It, it wasn't the scope. The scope was actually... Achievable, like in your like, mind. It, like, well, hopefully achievable. It was like, this sounds pretty much like exactly what I want to do. So let me see if I'm ready for it. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. yeah. Challenge. <laughs> Challenge and opportunity, it always comes together. Yeah. 
Yeah. What did you have to work with when you when you took the position? Like, what what was here? You mentioned that your headquarters are in Farmingdale. Uh, yeah. So I had uh, one uh, scientist uh, reporting to me in Farmingdale who continued to conduct mechanism of action studies um, to support an IND for that lead asset. Mm-hmm. Um, I obviously had. Uh, cross-functional support from regulatory and medical and and CMC and other other departments that uh, to that date primarily were focused on infectious disease assets and live attenuated vaccines, um, but I did have you know that expertise to to help with. Um, I worked from home in the beginning until we um, went through a whole bunch of. Um, you know, application processes for lab space at the time. Um, around that time, the real estate market in, in the Boston area was really tough. It was um, almost impossible to find anything. So we were very grateful that we had the opportunity to be accepted to one of the lab central locations here um, and tap into that that community of, of biotechs, emerging biotechs um, that Lab Central creates and creates really well um, together with their partners and sponsors. So eventually we moved into here into the offices, then our labs became operational about a little over a year ago now. So it's it's a process. Yeah. What are some of the, just curious, what, what some of the criteria are? You said you were fortunate to be uh, accepted uh, in, into the Lab Central space. Are there certain criteria that Lab Central looks for in a tenant? Uh, yes, I mean, yes. I mean, you obviously have to have an, an interesting plan for growth that uh, they, with their respective site sponsors, are interested in. Um, frankly, there are some criteria related to um, not being a direct competitor to another resident company right. um, that is out of your control in a way. Um, luckily, uh, Lab Central does not have super strict uh, restrictions on um, dollars amounts raised at the time of application, which is in contrast to some of the other incubators that are really focused on seed stage companies, mm-hmm. while Lab Central is focused on helping biotech companies at all stages. Yes, their original location is supporting you know, three scientists at a shared bench somewhere. Um, but by the time you get to some of the other locations, um, they allow you to be a more mature and larger organization. So they are less strict on, on funds in that sense, um, or fundraise history, I should say, um, which um, made it easier for us to be admitted in the sense that while we were pitching for a relatively small team in this new disease area, the company had been in existence for 10 years and is, is much more established in, in the infectious disease side. So in a way, we we're building a startup within a biotech and we needed to communicate that appropriately why we fit into an incubator-related space like this. Yeah. So... The, the transition from uh, some of the hands-on, I mean, and I know it happened gradually over time, but now, to your point, you find yourself in an EVP role, um, you know, building infrastructure and people and teams. Do you miss the the research? Do you miss the science? Or are you still involved? Like, tell me a little bit about... So, 
I don't miss being in lab. Okay. <laughs> uh, very clear for me that that I feel more passionate about how I can influence science from a non-bench-based position. Um, but I am still deeply involved in the science. It's actually part of the beauty of this role that I have, that I can sit in one meeting describing how to, I don't know, analyze an ELISA assay and how to apply that and, and how we can graph something complex in an intuitive way. Um, and in the next meeting, you know, you talk about staffing or budgets or whatever it is. So it's the diversity of that that is actually appealing. And I don't consider myself removed from the science. In mm -hmm. fact, if anything, that is something I would advise people to stay true to the scientific depth that you need to have to actually be well-versed in what you're trying to accomplish. It is easy to go broad and do all these shiny things you get to go to present you get to do this kind of interview and you know that's that's all nice but at the end of the day your job is to develop drugs for patients and you do that through deep scientific knowledge if you're coming from the science track obviously if you have mm -hmm. other types of responsibilities different roles it comes from a different angle but you have to have a technical expertise and you need to find a way to stay deep enough on that um, to hold your ground, honestly. How, how do you maintain <clears throat> that? Like, what, what are some of the things you do daily and come on, are you you're plugged, yeah, in, I plug, mean, plugged in with your, your, your um, employees? I mean... Yeah, I mean, it's part of, but that is more helping the science you create afterwards, right? Um, I think for me, it's honestly PubMed alerts. Uh, it's my favorite thing. Every morning, I open my inbox, and while it's deer in headlights of the number of emails, many of them are actually my PubMed alerts that push me titles and abstracts, mm -hmm. um, which at least allows me to monitor trends, what is hip and what isn't. If there are new words that then keep coming up all the time in titles, then obviously there is something to that biology that I should be aware of. Um, and it helps you stay on top of it. Um, I am very fortunate that I get to go to a lot of scientific conferences where I also get to, you know, stay on top of what's what's going on and sometimes, again, follow trends. Mm -hmm. um, and I do try and put placeholders in my calendar for personal thinking and reading and things like that. And yes, those are the slots that get pushed around <laughs> relatively easily, unfortunately. Um, but I, at least every week I have a reminder in my calendar that tells me that I should be focusing on this and mm -hmm. you try your best. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what are some of your favorite uh, uh, resources? You mentioned conference, scientific conferences. Mm -hmm. what, what are some of your favorite resources to, to stay up on? Scientific trends. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's conferences. I actually really like panel discussions and fireside chats these days. I always dismiss that as something that isn't deep enough. Mm -hmm. But now I actually really appreciate hearing from very senior people 
thinking about the field and the trends as a whole. So um, there, there were also um, consulting companies that uh, put these things out in webinars. Um, you know, their platform like yours, where experts get to talk about um, their science, and it's it's deep enough that if there's something that's you know connected to what you're trying to do or something that you're really curious about that's new to you, that you know you have enough tools and names to look and and then do a little bit of your own. On research, yeah. I think it's a, it's it's. I never appreciated how much quote, quote, free content there is out there actually, mm-hmm. and how much people are actually willing to share in some of these interviews. Obviously, not their secret sauce, but right. their general thoughts around where the field should go, and particularly in immunology, that's important because. Let's be real. Despite billions of dollars having been invested in immuno-oncology, with some incremental improvements over what the P1, PDL1 axis inhibitors can do, we haven't made the next big leap. Yeah. Um, and so I think putting all of our knowledge and minds together to do the next big improvement and transformation for patients, I think. It's probably not going to be solved by one individual. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, those panels you mentioned, you were, as I mentioned, you you were my guest on one, I believe it was back in May, mm-hmm. um, and did a fantastic job there. And, and I know it's been a short time, right? It's, we're looking at the, at the fall. Um, so it hasn't been a ton of time, but uh, I wanted to get an update on what's going on at Codagenics since we last spoke. And, you know, to your point, I'm not expecting you to spill the <laughs> secret sauce, but uh, share with me some of the work that, yeah. that you're doing now. Yeah, thanks. Um, on the oncology side, I think we have been um, making progress on both a deeper understanding of how our lead acid um, which is an influenza-based oncolytic virus uh, targeted for breast cancer immunotherapy. Um, how that works in particular in the context of, um, you know, standard of care therapies in the breast cancer space, um, which is continuous work we have been incrementally building on over the last uh, few years. And we've made them some progress also on our um, discovery efforts and portfolio build efforts. Mm-hmm. to be shared at a future date when mature enough. Um, on the other side, at Codagenics, on the infectious disease side, obviously we have several ongoing uh, clinical trials um, in a variety of, of spaces, and we are working hard to uh, move those along. And again, we'll, we'll release um, the appropriate data um, when, when those clinical data sets are ready. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is next for you in terms of the mission that you accepted when you came to Codagenics? Like, uh, you, you, you rattled off all these, uh, you know, all these goals, all these responsibilities. Um, obviously, you've made great progress. Uh, what, what boxes still need to be checked off or what are some of the forthcoming boxes for Dr. Yeah. Jill Kaufman? Huh. Well, I think what I would like to focus on even more so um, as we hopefully accelerate out of 2023 into, you know, the next fundraising round and things like that is I think part from staying on track scientifically and portfolio wise is to continue to build a team culture that really 
ensures we are a high-performing team um, and hopefully um, you know test run some of those initiatives that support uh, scientific development of staff um, in a way here in Cambridge but obviously the idea is to to apply those things and and make them you know uh, in parallel to similar initiatives um, in other parts of the organization I think we need to think more about how do we help our scientists do the best job that they can do. And some of that is, you know, giving back uh, to my team members what other leaders did for me and give them opportunities and help them go out there and learn and talk about their science and get yeah. the tough questions and go through the motion of maybe not having an answer today, but then thinking about it and being better prepared and seeing their own progression um, about their scientific knowledge, about how they apply that scientific knowledge and how that fits into the larger development process as a whole. Yeah. How big is the team here in Cambridge? Mm -hmm. Our oncology R&D team has currently three bench-based scientists. Um, and uh, given that there is a process development focus at this particular lab uh, location or lab central location, um, we are also building our process development team here, um, which is soon to be two. Oh, very good. Very cool. Good stuff. The labs are right here in this, uh, yep, yep. Yeah, in this facility? Cool. Yes, they are. Yeah, across the bridge. <laughs> across the bridge. All right. Uh, is it, is, as far as like team growth is concerned, is are, are you like do you leverage the the great academic institutions here in, in Boston and Cambridge? Is that kind of where you're core? I think. Well, <laughs> we always are supposed to be saying yes. Of course, we are leveraging <laughs> this. Right. You do leverage it in the sense of the the talent pool here in this area is obviously incredible because of all these uh, fantastic institutions that are a short walk away from here. Mm -hmm. um, and um, again, there is a lot of core facility access and things like that, that through the lab central or the larger mass bio network, we are able to tap into. Um, if you're asking me, are you constantly going to seminars down the road? I mean, that is always the dream that you would have time for that. Um, <laughs> but I, I sometimes wonder um, if we should be doing more of that, actually, and really tapping into all the different yeah. opportunities we have by being here. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a, that would be more than a full-time job in and of itself. Yeah. Um, what, what parting advice would you give uh, young scientific professionals who sort of want to, want, want to plot the same course that, that you did and continue to do? I would say stay open to opportunities. Um, maybe what has come through those conversations, some of the influential things I look back on in my career are actually not things I planned for. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so it is about seeking opportunities and, and making the best out of it. Um, at the same time, I think, it's really important to maintain a network and relationships. I know that seems to be a beaten horse sometimes and people always refer to their network and are proud of the connections they have on LinkedIn by the numbers. I don't mean superficial things. Mm -hmm. I mean actually true connection to people um, and to staying open to their points of view that are different and maybe challenge you sometimes. 
Yeah. I think that's that's the key. Well, that's fantastic. I, I appreciate that. And I appreciate you for allowing me to come into the office today and spend some time with you. I've enjoyed it. I think you did a great job and offered some terrific insight for our audience. Um, and I look forward to maintaining my place in your network and hopefully working with you. Of course. Thank you. Soon. Thank you so much for being here. Thank I you, appreciate Joe. it. Thank you. So that's Codagenics EVP of Oncology, Dr. Johanna Kaufman. Uh, I'm Matt Pillar. This is the Business of Biotech. We're produced by Life Science Connect in partnership with Cytiva. Check us out at bioprocessonline.com backslash B-O-B. And thanks for listening. <laughs>